All right, well, we're in a series entitled Build, and we're looking right now at the four pillars of our church, our core values. And we're talking about pillars because Paul says in Ephesians that the church is the living expression of God in the world, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And what do pillars do? But pillars take the stability of the foundation and they raise it to create inhabitable space where people can live and connect. And our church is, is built on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says there is no other foundation. But we through our core values, raise the truths of the gospel into a place where people can connect with God to find life, to find meaning, to find purpose, to find community, and to live in a relationship with God through the fellowship of his people. And we've talked about pillar number one was relationship with God, that God wants to know us because he's made us alive with him. Pillar number two is authenticity, life in Christ, what it means to, to grow in this relationship with God into the image of Jesus Christ. And today we look at pillar number three, expression, life by the Spirit, life by the Spirit. These pillars establish the teaching, the ministries, and ultimately the mission of our church to help people connect and grow in relationship with God. And so today, as we look at life by the Spirit, we're seeing that Christians walk with God daily by the Spirit's power and under the Spirit's control. And here's what I want you to take away, that, that Christians live by the Spirit to love others as we've been loved by God through the expression of our life. Christians live by the Spirit to love others as we've been loved by God through the expression of our life. What we're going to see today is, is that expression grows directly out of the first two pillars, uh, out of relationship with God and authenticity in Jesus Christ. And we go back to a central passage for us, Matthew chapter 22. It's where we have come to understand the great commandment to be given to us by Jesus. But Jesus has posed a question in the 22nd chapter of Matthew, and it's by a Pharisee who's trying to trick him. But when he asked the question, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus does a very interesting thing. He ties Leviticus 19.18, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, the Pharisee, the one asking him and the people all around him, would have known exactly what Deuteronomy 6 was all about. It was what they claimed to be their center of life. And so when he quoted Deuteronomy 6, everybody was like, okay, yeah, we get that. Obviously, that's the answer. But when he tagged onto it, he said this, and the second is like the first. And then he cited Leviticus 19, 18. They would have said, wow, okay, that, that's never been done before. What Jesus did was something that had never been done before and here's how he concluded that. He said, when you take Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second that is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And here's how he concludes it, Matthew chapter 22, verse 40. On these two 
hang the whole of the law and the prophets. That's a weighty, weighty statement. In other words, he said this, this is everything about knowing God. And that had never been done before, friends. He created a a new relationship between verses and he formed what we've come to know and call the great commandment of the scriptures. He connected how relationship with God determines how we as God's followers relate to all other people in the world. That's what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, and that's what Jesus is saying to us. You see, the great commandment is not just about loving God. That's actually the part that the religious leaders that Jesus condemned so harshly in the New Testament, that's the part they actually got right. As a matter of fact, they loved God so well and so perfectly, they were self-righteous in their love for God. And that was the problem. It wasn't really a love for God. It was a love for self with God's name on it. And what Jesus was doing was exposing that. The great commandment is not just about loving God, but how loving God leads you to live in love towards other people. Jesus is telling us that's the central message here. Relationship with God determines that we know him and how we relate to other people because we know God. That's the central theme of what he's teaching us here. You see, expression of life, as we're talking about today, is walking daily by the Spirit's power, who is God in us, in order to share his love with the whole world. Jesus changes how you live. That's what he's teaching us. And specifically how you live in relation to other people. How often does religion take us and remove other people from the equation? And as long as we believe we're okay with God, it doesn't matter how we treat other people. And Jesus says, you're never okay with God when you treat other people in a way that is ungodly, that God has not treated you. I want to take us to 1 John chapter 4 because I want to show you this relationship. I want to show you how this connection plays out. What Jesus does in the great commandment is the foundational command. It's the foundational principle. But there are throughout scriptures many ways where we demonstrate how our relationship with God directly determines how we are to relate to other people. Verse 16 of 1 John chapter 4 says this. So we have come to know and to believe. You see that? That's critical for John. Just to know something intellectually is not sufficient. You must believe it with the whole of your life. So he says, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. We love because he first loved us. You see that? Our action is determined by his origination. That's what he's telling us here. Now, I'm going to read verse 20 for you. It's not on the screen, but stay with me. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And verse 21 anchors it all together for us. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Friends, Christians live by the Spirit to love others as we've been loved by God through the expression of our life. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we're compelled by God's love, controlled by that love from within. We can no longer live any other way but to serve others in Jesus' name. You see, to live as you've been loved means you must remain in that love so that it overflows from your life because that love doesn't originate with you. It originates where? From the Father. Therefore, we have to remain in that love. Jesus says, John 15, 5, abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. Right? Abide. That's what he's teaching us, to remain in that love. So Christians love so that God can work through their lives to share his love with all people. And this is why expression forms our third core value or our third pillar Because the way we live reveals the way we've been loved by God. Every area of our life, every way in which we practice or live our life, every action and attitude that we demonstrate, it always reveals what we know and what we believe about God. That's why sin is so potent. Because sin is the activity, the action, the attitude that denies the nature and the truth of who God is. And that's what we're learning. To live in a love that is so powerful, it controls us. Not only in the way we live towards God, but the way we live towards other people. Many of you have met my parents I grew up in a pastor's home. My parents weren't perfect by any means. My, they, they weren't perfect people. They weren't perfect parents. I could give you a long laundry list of the times I got in trouble that I just disagreed. <laughs> However, I never doubted whether or not I was loved. It was just never, it was something I took for granted every day. It was just something I lived in. I never questioned whether mom or dad loved me. Actually, there are two times I questioned their love. Number one, I can remember distinctively my brother telling me, the cops are coming to get you today. You're not welcome here anymore. (laughs) And I believed him. And there was chaos in the house until he had to speak to the judge for the reason he said what he said. That was fun. The second reason was this. It was every time I got in trouble, I didn't question my parents' love. I just questioned if I wanted it at that moment, right? That love gave me a a stability, friends, a, a, a stability to live free from the whole of who I knew myself to be or, or wanted to be. And, and in expression, we are rooted in this love from God to know that our whole life is loved such that Romans tells us in chapter 8, nothing can separate us from that. Nothing can separate us from that love. 
how powerful that is for us to live in and out of. And the Bible tells us that God's presence within us by the Holy Spirit infuses that love within us. And, and that infusing of love is poured out in, in such a way that it's greater than what we can contain. It's more than, than we are formed to hold, right? It's pouring 10 gallon in a one liter pitcher, right? I mean, it's just gonna be a big mess because it's gonna overflow everywhere. And, and the Holy Spirit infuses love into our lives so that we can live as we've been loved so that others can experience the love that we've lived in and are living in. Expression, friends, is our second pillar because we're compelled to, to engage our hands and to transfer the glory of God's love from him that's flowing into and through us to all people of the world. Just pause for a moment and think about this. That's how God wants to use your life, Christian. That this is not just theory. This is the most practical understanding of relationship with God and the purpose for which he has saved and redeemed us. And so what I want to spend our time looking at today is how is it then that Christians live towards other people because we've been loved? How is it that, that we live towards other people because we've been loved? And here's what I want to set forth, that in each of these ways, I'm calling them four distinct forms of the Christian life that, uh, by the Spirit, because it's not just about what we do, friends, but, but it's what we do combined with how we do that is so potent. That's what Jesus is saying. It's what Jesus is laying forth for us to teach, and that's what we're going to see Today, The first form I want you to see this morning is this, that expression means we live to serve in Jesus' name. Expression means we live to serve. Now, let, let me just kind of prepare you for this. There's four forms I'm going to cover today. I'm going to spend the bulk of the time on the first two because the second two I'm going to deal with later in other sermons, okay? And I don't want to steal all my thunder. But I got a lot of thunder in the first two, so don't worry. There'll be plenty of storms happening. Expression means we live to serve in Jesus' name. As we said, living in God's love and living to serve Jesus changes the way you see everything about your life. Now, I would propose this. When the Bible speaks of God's love and how he has loved us, and when the Bible speaks of our love for God, you could take that word love and input the word serve as the outward expression of that love, and almost every time without exception, it would be a correct interpretation of the understanding. Serve is just simply the outward expression of love. And so that's what we're talking about here. Jesus provides our foundation, ultimately, and most importantly, but he also provides for us a, 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 an example as he lived on the earth for how we are to live to serve. Mark chapter uh, 10, verse 43 to 45 teaches us, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. This is Jesus talking to his disciples Instead of wanting to be first, you should be last. Kingdom principles, right? Kind of flips everything upside down. 
Verse 44, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, the first lesson that Jesus teaches about gospel expression is the most important. Serving is not about me. Serving is not about me. It's not about my wants. It's not about my needs. It's not about my strengths or my gifts. It's not about my desires. It's not about my plans. It's not about my goals. Serving Jesus begins by confronting this, what I would call the greatest barrier to serving, and that's self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. You know, in my life, which is far younger than actually is, I know, I feel younger most days, but I, ha- I have seen this evolution of serving in the church. And, and this evolution of serving uh, over maybe 60 years or so, though I'm not 60 years old, but, but what I was born into was already very much of an established ethos in the church or philosophy that led the church. And, and that was the, what I would call the duty-driven philosophy of serving. I can remember my great-grandparents and my grandparents and even my parents holding to this idea that we serve the Lord. It's our duty to serve the Lord. And, and, and listen to me. I know some of you just can't imagine the D word actually being correct. You know, it's, it's a dirty four-letter D word, right? Duty. I don't know what y'all were thinking, but that's what I was meaning. Mm, mm, mm. I'm not judging. I'm praying. But today we go, oh, you shouldn't do anything out of duty or obligation. Actually, that's not true. That shouldn't be the only reason you do it. But, but discipline and duty and obligation, those are good things. And what we'll see are things that we willingly obligate ourselves to because they're the right things that we need to be doing. But as a soul-defining philosophy for why we serve, no. Duty-driven didn't hold And so we see in the mid to late 80s, what began to arise was this spirit gift drivenness, okay? Now, spiritual gifts are the things that God's put upon us. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But but what I'm talking about is the movement of the church where the church began to say that the reason you serve is because you discover your spiritual gifts. And so everybody took a test. They identified what the answers on their test said their spiritual gifts were, and then that determined where they served. The problem is this, that in this defining philosophy that drove the church for this season, and still I'm sure drives some today, is this. It wasn't about how you serve, it was just about where you served. And if that was my gift, that's all I could do. And so it pigeonholed people. And and people served in that way. And And the focus was more on the discovery of where they could serve and should serve rather than on the expression, the demonstration of that gift. That, that took some time, but then we see that, that people realize, you know, just because I can do, do this doesn't mean I want to do this, right? And so we see the emergence of the passion-driven serving philosophy. Oh, you know, the reason you're serving where you are is, is because you can, but you don't want to. So what you need to do is figure out what your passion is and then lock in. Now, some of you are tracking with me now because I'm into your life now and your space. 
And if you'll just find what you love, you'll do anything for it. But you know what happened with this philosophy? Is we determined that we didn't love things as much as maybe we thought we loved them. We loved them for a time, usually as much as they served us. But, but we interpreted passion for the things that make us feel love instead of the passion of Scripture that is real love. And so this, this one moved on too. Now I'm about to get into our junk a little more here and get into our business. Because when passion-driven serving moved on, cause-driven serving moved in. You find the right cause. That's the problem. It's not just about what you can do. It's not just about what you want to do. It's about what needs to get done, right? And here we are. You find a cause that you want to serve and you go after it. You give everything for it. The problem is this. In time, causes do what? They burn us up and burn us out. When we serve for the cause alone or even as our principal motivator. And so from the cause driven, we've actually moved a little more out of that to what I'm going to call the platform driven. And I think this is between cause and platform driven. This is the transition we're even in much today. And some people go, well, I don't really have a platform. But, but the platform driven serving is where we, we build a platform. We build a presence. It might be a blog. It might be a channel. It might be a site. But whatever we do, we're out there to get our message out. And let me tell you, that's going to leave us at the same point that all of these others broken philosophies of serving in the church have left us. You see, none of these are wrong, but none of these are singularly right. That's the problem. And that's what Jesus is teaching us. When we serve, we must do so from a sufficient supply for all that we need. So, so it, it must engage all of these things. If, it, if I were to say that it ought to be a gospel-fueled purpose and motivation for serving, I would say it would include all of these and more. You see, we need complete spiritual nourishment to strengthen our act of serving and to sustain our understanding of why we serve. That, that's where we miss it so often. And in self-centered serving, we just think about us in order to determine what we're going to do or how we're going to serve because the why always leads us to a point of, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. Why? Because Jesus is the only why that will sustain you in your serving. That's my point with all of this, friends. There are two passages that teach us God's grace and how it gives us spiritual strength and sustenance for serving. The first one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, and it says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency, what does that mean? Everything you need, whatever it is, in whatever amount or supply it is. That's what sufficiency means. Having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You see what he's teaching here, and actually this verse is in the longest teaching on the serving act of giving. One of the most difficult statistically acts of serving in the church today. Here's what he's telling us though, is that Jesus not only leads us in how to give, how to serve, but in why it is. And in our giving, we don't run out because we understand it's not about us, it's about him, but it's coming through us. 
And that's what's so important in our understanding of expression. When we serve the Lord, he is our supply. And he supplies for us so that we are sourced to serve him for what he wants us to do and for the why that he has us doing it. It's not get all you want or do all you can, but it does mean that we have all that we need in limitless supply. I tell you, friends, when we understand this principle, it gives us the freedom to say no, the hardest word in the English language, to exercise when it's most necessary to exercise, right? And maybe in the church, the most used word at the most incorrect time when it shouldn't be exercised, but it is. But that's a pastoral, you know, um, issue, and I'll um, deal with that later. Listen, friends, the first thing Jesus tells us is that God takes care of your business when you take care to obey what he's given you to do. Your heart, does it exhaust you? Absolutely. If I don't leave here 110% spent on Sundays, I haven't done what I'm supposed to do. I'm exhausted. I I don't go to sleep on Sunday nights I end up collapsing somewhere, but I would have it no other way. I think church ought to have an exhausting factor to it. You ought to spend all of who you are to worship the Lord. Why? Because if you're not, you're holding some of it back for yourself. But my exhaustion doesn't leave me spent so that I'm in desperation or despair. It leaves me glad and joyful that all of who I am can be given for all that he is worthy of. But God takes care of more than just our needs. He shows greater glory. Let me lead you to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. You see, Paul struggled with what he called his thorn in the flesh. And he begged God to remove it, but God had a greater purpose. Listen to these verses. This is Paul speaking. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul didn't want his thorns, and he didn't like his thorns. They were painful, they were inconvenient, they were discomforting, they were frustrating to him. As a matter of fact, his argument to God was, God, if you'd remove this thorn from me, I could do more and I could do better for you. And you know what God said? I didn't ask you to do more or do better. I asked you to do what I told you to do. And I want you to know that when you can't do, I still can That your lack of ability doesn't limit my ability whatsoever. And what I want to do is not just something through you, but I want to do something in you. And that's why I want even your serving of me to build intimacy with me 
and not to bring frustration with me from that serving. You see, this is why God works in us to demonstrate his power throughout all of the demonstration of our strengths. And when we've run out and we've ended up in our weaknesses, Paul says this, God's the strongest when we're the weakest. It's not that he's not present in our strengths, but we're more aware of his presence in our weaknesses. And that's what he teaches us here. You could do more for God without these thorns, Paul. But God and his answer is more glorious than Paul's request. Let me ask you something, friends. Do you believe that? Because if you don't, you're going to burn yourself out trying to live out of your strengths unbridled, and it will burn you up. You can't burn a bush that is not consumed, but God can. As a matter of fact, he does. He burns our life in glory, but we are not consumed. That's what Paul is teaching us here. When we understand this principle, it leads us to intimacy with God so that our testimony can say, if I must boast, I will boast of things that show my weakness so that God will be demonstrated as glorious. In serving, God's not looking for more from us than we can do, but greater glory in and through us. That's his purpose. Self-centered serving, good deeds, other people, big needs, great causes, these will never be sufficient to supply us, to maintain our serving, to persevere. Only God's grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient to source our life of serving. And when we see and understand God's greater glory in serving, he supplies us to satisfy us with an overflowing joy even when we are exhausted and spent. We're not consumed. We're not consumed. Only Jesus is worthy to be served with your whole life everything. And expression means that we live to serve Jesus in his name as our supply and as our strength. Now the second form I want you to see today comes right out of this. Expression means our life is a living sacrifice. We talked about Romans 12, 1 and 2 last week and how uh, our relationship with God renews our mind and God, as we learn to live in the gospel and apply it to our life, is, is rethinking all things about our life. But this flows right out of that because Romans 12, 1 says that, that we are to live as a living sacrifice. Because of the gospel, Christians understand our life as a living sacrifice. You see, there's no part of life that is separated from our relationship with God. Our whole is being offered to him in worship. The primary way we worship God is by the way we live all of our life. That's what Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 is all about. Go read verse 6 and following. 
It's about how you live your life. And that's the primary way we worship. Now, what Paul's talking about here is he's referencing the Old Testament sacrificial system. And in that system, there were representative animals that were killed. And actually, they were chosen. They were killed. They were bled. And they were burned as an act of worship. But in that act, every part of the sacrificial animal was was used. There was no part of the body or the carcass of the animal that went to waste. Every part was strategically used in the act of worship. And so when Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians, for we, speaking to Christians, are the aroma of Christ to God, he's referencing this Old Testament sacrificial system. When he says that we're living sacrifices, he's referencing this sacrificial system because the aroma of worship is no longer in the burning of a representative animal, but rather it is in the Christian living in Christ. That's the aroma he's speaking of. You see, Christians are the smoldering incense of Jesus' sacrificial death that's wafting through the ages, that's pleasing God by expanding his glory. When we recognize that our life is a living sacrifice, Jesus receives all the glory. You see, here's what we have come to believe. That Jesus bore up under in the flesh to bear the condemnation for our sins so that we might put him on to be clothed in his righteousness and live in it. That's what it means for us to be a living sacrifice. Jesus died for us. We don't die, but we live for him who for us died. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 14 also explains this. You see, a living sacrifice recognizes that giving up anything and, and maybe everything for Jesus is always worth it. Always worth it. Philippians 2 says that Jesus, though he was God, did not consider being God something to hold on to. What is he doing? He knew that obeying the Father was worth giving up his position because he wasn't threatened by losing anything. Anything you give up to God, you don't lose it unless God determines that it's best for it to be away from you because he wants to give you something greater. You see, and that's what Jesus taught us in Philippians 2. He gave up every right that he had as God to claim in order to save us. And so when we live as a living sacrifice, we willingly lay down our rights in order to obey and to serve God's purpose. It's not that we become less in some way, but rather we offer up our lives for a higher glory, for a greater purpose. Just as the representative animal of the Old Testament sacrificial system, every part of it was used. So every part of our life is given to God as a living sacrifice. And when we live to serve others in Jesus' name, we demonstrate that one who has loved us is worthy of all honor and is worthy of all the glory of our life. Paul later testifies to Christ's worthiness. He says this in Philippians 3, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is how we serve, friends. It's always a matter of how well we, in the moment, when the opportunity arises, when the call comes, when you know God has called you to do something, you go, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I want to do that, God. 
But how we serve is always a matter of how well in that moment we remember that God has loved us and treated us and how worthy he is of our all. For the sake of the gospel, we consider everything of lesser value than to know Christ and make him known. And when a Christian serves, we lay down our claim to control so Christ can be exalted. Christian, is there anything of which you would say to God, it's not worth it for me to give that up in order to serve you, Lord? If so, you've forgotten your first love. You've set your love on something that will not be able to provide what it promised and will not satisfy the way it said it would. Ask the Lord today by the presence of Holy Spirit in you to infuse his love back in you. Don't get up and go do. Ask the Spirit to infuse so you can't stay seated when he speaks. The third form, and I'm going to move through these last two quickly. Expression means we understand our life as a stewardship unto God. As a stewardship unto God. In salvation, all of life is because God has given us life. Therefore, how we live represents who our life belongs to. And this is what we know as stewardship unto God. God gave us life. All that we have in this world is from his hand and is entrusted to us. Servants and living sacrifices don't bargain for what they're willing to give up for the master. Can you imagine a bull saying to the priest before he was sacrificed, hey, yo, keep that tail because that ball thing on the end is killer. You need to hang that up somewhere, right? You need to keep that. No, that's ludicrous. Ludicrous. But we do that to God every day and all the time. Listen, Lord, you can have everything, but don't touch this. Stewards are responsible to faithfully care for all that's been entrusted to them per their master's orders. Per their master's orders. And so stewardship means that we live such that our time, our treasure, and our talent becomes a manifestation of God's grace in our life. Christians demonstrate what we believe about God by how we steward all of the resources of our life. Our time, our treasure, our talents, our energies, our work ethic is a demonstration of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Our sexual ethic and the way we live our lives in this world. All of these things amplify one defining life confession. Jesus is Lord. Is the way you're living aligning with what you're saying as a Christian? When you ask, why do, when you are asked, why do and why would you live that way? As Peter says, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have because Jesus, because he's good and he's worthy. And sometimes that seems so insufficient and people scoff at it until they look at their own life and realize, I don't have anything that I can say that's worthy of everything. The fourth form, expression, means that we exercise spiritual gifts to bless and to build others in God's love. 
And so here we return to spiritual gifts. Unless you thought otherwise, I'm not opposed to spiritual gift inventories. Matter of fact, I use them regularly, and I think if you're a Christian, you should too. Don't get in a hurry. We'll do that in a few weeks. You see, friends, spiritual gifts determine what we do in serving. But here's where most people miss it and many churches miss it. It not only determines what we do, it determines how we do it. How we do it. If you're a Christian, God has given you a special and a specific designation of grace on your life to be used, not for you, but to help other people grow up in his image. Your service in gifts is essential not only for your personal growth and maturity, but for the personal growth and maturity of other people. You want to know who's responsible or who's dependent upon your exercising of your gifts? Just look around on any given week. Every person that flows in and out of this building, whether you have any immediate contact with them or not, grows up by the faithful demonstration and exercise of your gifting every week. You see, God's grace on our life directs us in what we should be doing to serve others, and the very way he bestows his grace on our life informs the how of our serving. Grace empowers our doing to produce glory by deepening the anchor of our being in the one who is altogether glorious. And so expression means that we exercise our spiritual gifts to build up ourselves in God's love and others. 